Merry Christmas to you all. That was, that was not wishing me a Merry Christmas, uh, except for John over there. So, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you. It's now Merry for me. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John. We'll be in the very first chapter, just talking about the first five verses of that book. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can borrow one of ours in the pocket of the pew in front of you. You can find John chapter 1 on page 833 of that Bible. I, I love the fact that we live in the northern hemisphere for Christmas time. I especially love being this far north. Um, I was a little bit disappointed, to be honest, with the storm of the, the year that we were supposed to have blow through, it dropped like three or four inches of snow, and I was kind of hoping for that storm that hit Buffalo a couple weeks ago that dropped like six feet of snow that we might get its little cousin. Um, I know I'm, I'm seeking help. I, I love snow. I love being around it. Um, I don't necessarily love the cold, but my, my thought is if it's going to be cold, we might as well have a bunch of snow to go with it. So I'm, I'm happy that we have at least a little bit of snow. It, it's good for us to have darkness during Christmas. We, we have about 15 hours worth of darkness right now, only about nine hours where the sun tries to come out in Michigan. Um, the Lord protects us from its evil rays by giving us cloud cover of gray steel uh, until about March, and so thank him for that. No cancer for all of you. Uh, but uh, it's good that we have this because we get to talk about the light and talking about the light is a very helpful thing when you're sitting in darkness. Now, I'm sure that people in Australia who are going through summer during Christmas, which is just a very weird kind of idea, uh, they probably think that they've got it better than us, but they're wrong. Um, and that is the gospel truth. You can put your, it's just somewhere in the back um, of the Bible. It is good because we do get to talk about how the light comes into the world, and it's those who are in darkness who need the light the most. It's those who are in darkness who desire to have the light shed on them the most. As we read this morning about the coming of Jesus, it is meant to be light blasting into the darkness, a darkness that for the people of Jesus' time was felt as easily as it was seen, it was a darkness of evil and strife, of sin and want, and yet the hero who comes bringing light into the world. There is perhaps no passage in Scripture, I think, who has as much meaning for these things as John 1, 5, and we will get to that verse here in just a second. I know that we, we have gone to this gospel not too long ago. We preached through the whole thing, and um, so now we're coming back to it at least for this morning. I have just a few brief thoughts on John 1, 5 to share with you as we consider Christmas this morning. So if you would, please read with me the first five verses of the gospel according to John. John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As we think about that last verse, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We are reminded even of our scripture reading this morning that in the Galilean area, northern parts of Israel, a great light has shined. And that light then is the light of the coming of this child born and given to us. It is the light of Jesus Christ coming. I want to talk then 
about three things that I think John might be telling us from this verse, at least for us to consider. The first is this, that the light welcomes a new creation. The light welcomes a new creation. Many scholars have noted that this particular verse, if you were somebody who was unfamiliar with Christianity as a whole and you were simply reading these, if you were a Jewish person, perhaps some sort of pagan, you, you would have read these verses and you would have thought immediately of the creation of the world. As a matter of fact, it seems like John is quite intentionally drawing us there because the very first three words of John 1 match the first three words of Genesis 1 in the beginning. And we remember then from Genesis 1 that in the beginning there was light. These are the first three verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That means that, that the earth was not formed, it, it was empty of life, and there was darkness everywhere. So when it says darkness over the face of the deep, it means darkness even through the deep parts of the world, that there was no light. It was, it was an empty, vague space, chaos. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So this chaotic, random, dark mess that has no life. And darkness rules over it. And God speaks one word and disperses the darkness. The darkness cannot stand before the light. If you've ever been in a room where you throw on the lights, you understand how the physics behind this works. The light shines and the darkness is gone. It runs. It is dispelled. Where light is, darkness cannot be. If you were unfamiliar with anything else that comes in the Bible, if you are unfamiliar with anything else in the rest of how Christians talk about things, you might think that that is the only thing that John is talking about there in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He, he's just referring back again to Genesis. He's referring to the, the creation of light and the driving out of darkness from all of creation. But if you were to continue to read through your Bibles, you would find that the Bible consistently uses darkness and light as depictions of what is good and right and true and life, even as John has already done, versus darkness and being chaos and evil and sin and wretchedness and death. We find that the creation that God has made very quickly falls into disrepair through the sin of Adam and Eve, and darkness descends over all of man. And it doesn't take very long in Scripture before we get to Genesis chapter 6, five short chapters to get to Genesis chapter 6 where we read these pretty spectacular words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Darkness had so swept over humanity, had so swept over the earth, that all the universals applied here are given to all men. God did indeed send a flood to wipe them out, but the evil was not wiped out by the flood, nor was the evil going to be cured by God's calling of a people nor was it going to be slowed by God giving law, nor did it come under taming by the revelation of the prophets. Darkness 
was always going to hound the people of Israel from outside and plague them from inside. But now, John says, there was a light coming and the darkness was not going to stand before it. The darkness was not going to overcome it. And again, it was coming from the the very nature of God sending it out, speaking it. The word itself was to bring this light and it was going to dispel darkness, not as it did in the first place, not as the giving of physical light over the darkness over the earth, but to dispel the darkness of sin and wickedness and evil. Here John is referencing nothing less than the incarnation of the Son of God who carries with him the fullness of God. He comes as the very nature of light itself, pure and radiant goodness, perfect in every way. The early church creeds call him light of very light. And he has come then to make creation new again, to give light to creation again. Jesus, as it were, is dropped into the middle of this great, massive, surging sea of evil, and he has come to bring calm and peace to it, to fill it with goodness, to bring order to the very chaos of the darkness. If you were to go out and buy a bottle of water, not mineral water, but just pure spring water, especially water that had been distilled in some way, and you were to put it in a freezer. Your freezer exists at about zero degrees Fahrenheit, 32 degrees below freezing. You were to leave it in there for about two hours. If you were very, very careful with it, you could take it out. And that water should be below freezing. But if it's pure enough, that water would still maintain itself as water. It's what we call supercooled. And so while it's below its freezing point, the water itself can't quite organize itself to make crystals, and so it can't set up as ice. And if you were to carefully open the top of it, and you were to put a pin or a pencil into it, and you were to stir it just slightly, you would see crystals immediately start to form around where you're stirring and then spread immediately through the bottle. And what you were holding as a liquid just two seconds before, you could bang it on the table, and it would be rock hard. It's kind of a brilliant thing to watch. It's very cool. And you can watch the ice literally spread in a second throughout the rest of that bottle. It's a cool little experiment. That's precisely what Jesus seems to be doing here. He is dropped into this massive sea of darkness, of sin and evil and wretchedness and fallenness, of brokenness and hurt and sorrow and grief. And just as the light progresses out, like that ice progresses through the liquid, Jesus and his radiance and his beauty and his glory radiates out goodness from who he is. And you can watch it spread. You watch it spread through the Gospels. You watch it spread throughout church history. For Jesus has come to give a new creation, to make the light that he has given overwhelm this old and rusted out creation, to give newness of life. So the evil will stop when it truly meets Jesus. For his glory and his goodness will make all the noise and the strife of the men of this world come to an end. His light will drown out their darkness to bring good where there was evil, to bring righteousness where there was wickedness, wisdom where there was folly, love where there was hate, compassion where there was only judgment. This is our hope for the world that Jesus might shine and take men and women out of darkness and bring them into the goodness of his light. Secondly, 
When John says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, he means that the light will always win a resounding victory. The dark is not like the dark in the beginning, not just in that it's, it's now sin and wretchedness and wickedness, but also that it's not passive. The dark in the beginning just sat there and it was overwhelmed by the coming of the light, but this dark, this dark is not passive. It is not just a lack of something. It's not just a privation of that which is good. It has a force all on its own. It has desires all on its own. It seems to want to wreak havoc on all of mankind. So when this good child, this good man, this force of nature is dropped in and it comes face to face with this darkness, the darkness reacts to it. It fights back. It resists. It seeks to end the power that Jesus has in the world. But darkness cannot stand the light And so it only has at its disposal more darkness, more sin, more wickedness, more evil. So as this darkness in various forms looks upon the goodness of Jesus, all it can do is seek to sin against him, to turn evil men against him, that they might do their worst. The problem is, for evil and for sin, Jesus is better than them. And he uses their very evil and their very sinfulness against them. This is part of the power and the masterful plan that Jesus Christ has when he comes into the world. If you've ever watched wrestling or you've ever watched any sort of martial arts, you know that a good deal of that is to use the momentum of your, your, your enemy against him. So if they charge you, you back out and you allow their momentum to go forward or you pull them in so that you might, when they pull back away from you, push them over. This is exactly what Jesus does. You don't think of him technically as a master of hand-to-hand combat, but same kind of thing applies. All sin can do is sin against him, so he allows sin to be used against him that he might use that very momentum of sin to destroy sin. It tries to overwhelm him. Evil men threaten him. It doesn't work. He presses on. Evil men eventually take his life. All it does is provide righteousness and goodness for us. And what's more, it doesn't take. He rises again. Evil then turns and persecutes his followers, but it doesn't matter. They persevere, clinging tightly onto the one who has already won a victory. They bring false prophets against the truth, but it doesn't matter. The light of the world still rings forth. People continue to cling onto the word that God has given to them. Sinful people, our enemy, Satan, All the forces of evil in the world will always try to kill or deny or to slow the march and the victory of the light down. But the light will always show itself victorious. Just as in the beginning, the light will shine and the darkness will dispel. Darkness can only flee from it. Even as it attacks, even as it does its worst, it is always beaten back by the brilliance of the light. The light has shone and it will not go away. The dark can fight and press and lie and cheat and threaten and kill, but it cannot defeat the light. And this is, again, our hope. Our hope that the light will indeed win over the forces of evil in the world. That it will indeed bring all of the goodness that has been promised from the very beginning of Scripture will come one day to a fullness of completion in the return of Jesus Christ. That is our hope, that there will be light and that light will always be victorious over the darkness. But third, we need to understand that the light will not be universally understood. The light will not be universally understood. This word, overcome, 
has a pretty flexible meaning in Greek, and it can mean overcome as though it doesn't have a victory over it, it does not overcome it, but it can also mean understand. It means that it doesn't quite comprehend the light. The darkness is mystified by the light. It doesn't, doesn't make sense of the light. You can understand why they don't put the darkness has not understood it, because it kind of ruins the metaphor. We don't use metaphor of light and darkness necessarily for understanding and not understanding. And, and even when we do, it's for understanding something different. Not We don't say people who don't understand don't understand understanding. That metaphor doesn't quite make sense. And so you can understand why we don't use that particular phrase here, although it has been used before. Translations in the 1800s had used this. Some French translations have used this. But it's a, a legitimate way of thinking about this particular verse. After all, when we hear of Jesus coming, we read in verses 6 through 11 these words. Or let's skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So you, you have this sort of massive misunderstanding. He created the world, and he called his own people to him. Yet when he shows up in front of them, his people do not understand him. As we go through the book of Exodus, I continually compare the book of Exodus to the book of John. And here is another brilliant comparison. The people of Israel, when they are in Egypt, seem to have a complete lack of knowledge as to the nature of the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when God shows up, they, they don't comprehend him. They, they treat him like he's one of these fickle gods of Egypt that might take them out in the desert just to kill them. They don't trust him. They don't know him. And God comes, and he visits plagues on the Egyptians so that the Egyptians will know him, but also so that his people might come to know him. God shows up for his people, and his people don't get him. They don't know him. That's precisely what's going on here. Jesus comes, and those who greatly proclaim the goodness of Yahweh God don't understand Yahweh when he's standing directly in front of them. Those who do nothing but study the Torah and do nothing but study the Old Testament for their entirety of their lives have that very God standing in front of them, and they do not know it. They can't see the light from the darkness. They don't understand. These issues haven't gone away. Jesus is still massively misunderstood. Jesus is oftentimes thrown around to fit whatever kind of fight we need him to fight. Whether it's political or cultural, we, we use Jesus in a number of different ways, showing that we, other people in our culture, don't understand Jesus. They talk about how Christians and their sort of stiff moral code try to force that code on everyone else, not knowing that the very moral code that they themselves have bought into is in place only because Christianity has ruled over the Western Hemisphere for some 2,000 years, minus 300, 1,700 years. Jesus is often misunderstood. Jesus is misunderstood for a specific reason, though. It's not that he is terribly complicated to understand. Jesus is oftentimes misunderstood simply because wicked people don't want their sins exposed. John says this in 3, 19 and 20. 
the light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. They misunderstand purposefully because they don't want their own deeds exposed. They don't want them to be known. They don't want, even if they, even if they admit, yes, I do those things, what they don't want is for those things to be called wicked. What you can't tell people is not what they do. They're fine with you saying exactly what they do. They're okay with that. What they don't want you to do is to say what you do is wrong or immoral. It is sinful. But at the same time, we can listen to John and say, who does? Who wants to be told that the way that you live your life is wrong and immoral, you need to completely change it and turn it and move in a completely other direction. Everything that you have said that you believe is empty and void. It is like creation at the beginning. There's nothing to it. You need to fix your life. The Bible does give an answer to who actually wants to come to the light. Those who trust that there is something better on the other side. Those who will have their wickedness exposed, but believe that what comes after that is better than staying in the darkness. Those who know that the exposure to the goodness of the light is better than hiding in the shadows of the dark. These rightly understand the work of the light. After he says that the light has come into the world, it came to his own and his own did not know him. He says this in verse 12 of chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who come into the light, who have their own works exposed, have the right to be known as children of God, have the right to know God. Why do we allow our own wickedness to be exposed by Scripture? Why do we freely admit the, the evil that is in us based on what Scripture has said? Because we know that knowing God is better than not. We are willing to have our sinfulness exposed because the goodness of knowing God, of his freely given forgiveness, of trusting in him, is a gift that God has given us. It is not by our will. It is not by our choice. It is not because we are born into a family. It is solely because God has been pleased to give it to us. Today is one of the darker days in our land. I don't just mean like evil. I think there have been more evil times than this. But it's literally dark going to be 15 hours of darkness today. Batman's having a field day. The rest of us just struggle through these months. I get it. But no day shines brighter than today because today is Christmas and the light has indeed come and it has come to make you new again. It has come to change your heart to love the Lord your God. It has come to make you new as a new creation. It makes all around us as the goodness of Jesus Christ spreads. It has come to drive evil from you, not only from your insides, not only from your heart, but from around you, because the darkness cannot stand it and it will not overcome it. 
And the light has come to bring you to God, to show you the goodness and the beauty and the wonder of who your God is. This great gift is given to you all. Receive it today. Enjoy. Merry Christmas. Let us pray. Our great God, today we celebrate the coming of Jesus into our world, the breaking of light into the darkness. We ask that you might continue your great work of dispelling the dark both in and around us. Help us to walk rightly before you and to always be ever more pointing others to that light. Thank you for the immense and wondrous gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May he be praised forevermore. Amen. If you would stand and sing our last Christmas song of the season with us, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. <laughs>